This morning we are continuing our study through 1 Corinthians. If you have a Bible, you have it on your phone, begin to make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. We're just going to look at two this morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Let me read these to us, ask you to read along with me, and then we'll journey through. Paul writes, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Two short verses, a terrific number of issues that have come up historically and ways that people have taken this and misunderstood this and misapplied this. We're going to try to clean some of that up this morning. Um, and so just with... with uh, God's power and enabling, hopefully that will be true. You'll notice last week in 10 through 15 that what, uh, that, that what uh, Paul was talking about was effectively how to build the church. And so his argument was that we build the church by focusing on the foundation, Jesus Christ. And so if we get the foundation wrong, then everything else just goes to pot. We just can't make it unless we get this foundation right. So the foundation of the church is Christ. And so 10 through 15 was how to build the church. And 16 and 17, in some sense, is how to be the church. So once the thing is built, once it's constructed, once it's placed there, then, then how are we to be the church? So it's not an individual application. It's not looking at it and saying, how is this me? But it's how are we this? See, the church is not any of us. It is all of us. The church is not any of us. So it's not me and my individual preferences. It's not me and my individual likes. It's not the things that I just disdain. It's all of us. It takes all of us. So he begins in this, and Paul writes to them, and he asks them this question. He says, do you not know? Now, he's asking them this question not to ridicule them, not to say, hey, look, there's this piece of information that, that you're deficient in, some things that you're not aware of. But in essence, he's calling to mind something that was already true of them and something that is already true of you and I today. There are any number of truths uh, about me that you guys are completely unaware of. And luckily, there are any number of truths about you that I'm completely unaware of. But when Paul writes to them, effectively, he's telling them there are some things that you are not applying uh, to yourselves which are true of you in Christ Jesus. And so he says, do you not know? I think probably my favorite uh, movie genre or kind of grouping of movies, and this is going to upset some of you, uh, and it's going to delight some of you, are all the movies that come out of the Marvel Universe. I mean, I just... I just love them. I can't get enough of uh, Captain America, can't get enough Iron Man, can't get enough of the Hulk, Hulk smash. I mean, I just love all of these things. I think they're compelling stories. I think I can completely check my mind and watch that movie and my world just disappears for an hour and a half or, or however long. But in almost all these stories, one of the things you'll find is that there comes a, a part of the story in which the, the main protagonist, the main character becomes aware of something in him or herself. It's always been true. It's this moment where they, they dig down deep, right, to overcome uh, the bad guy. They dig down deep to accomplish some amazing feat. But these things have always been true of them. They just weren't availing themselves of it. So 
So the things Paul's getting ready to address have always been true of the church. But they were operating and they were engaging like these things weren't realities. They weren't true of them. And so the question before us is, how are we operating? Are we operating in our own strength? Or are we operating within the strength of God's Spirit? Look what he begins to tell them. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple? That you are God's temple. And so Paul could step in this room and he could ask us the same thing. Ridgecrest, do you not know that you are God's temple? Now, there are two ways we can take this question. One that's going to lead us down a path of ruin and the other that's going to lead us to a right interpretation of this. Now, the path of ruin looks at it and says, am I Charles God's temple? Am I Justin God's temple? Am I Lydia God's temple? Now, Paul's going to address that in some, sense, in some sense within 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when he talks about sleeping with prostitutes. And so he's going to talk about that there, but what he's talking about here is this corporate expression of being God's temple. You see, there are radically different responses. But within our Western conception of things, within especially this Americanized conception of things, we want to understand things primarily within terms of how does this matter to me and myself? Right? Me, myself, and I. What does that have to do with this? We have to understand the church isn't any of us. The church is all of us. So when he comes in this and he says, you are, the te- you are God's temple, you are the temple of God, he's talking to all of us at the same time. He's talking to all those in Corinth. So he's talking to all the poor people. He's talking to all the rich people. He's talking to all the people that say tongues is the best gift ever. He's talking to all the people that say, I don't have that gift. He's talking to the alcoholics. He's talking to everybody in that group. And he says, you all at the same time are God's temple. Now this is revolutionary. Because in some sense, in in one side of the group, you have people of Jewish ancestry. And so they think of Solomon's temple that they've read about. They think of Herod's temple that perhaps they've seen. And they think this thing is massive. It is splendid. It's delightful. It's the height of architecture. It has gardens. It has columns. It is just this massive building. How in the world am I that? Then he turns to the pagans, and in some sense, they're thinking about all the various temples that populate the the landscape there in Corinth, that populate the Roman landscape all over the empire. And they look at these things, and they are gorgeous to behold. Many of them you can still see today. And they're asking themselves this question, in what sense am I this? Like, how does this make sense? How does this work? You are God's temple. We meet Sunday after Sunday, in a public elementary school. We bring in cafeteria tables and folding chairs that many of you are afraid to sit in this morning. (laughs) In what sense are we God's temple? In what sense does that even begin to approach anything according with rationality? In the book of Exodus, starting in chapter 25 and running through chapter 40, Uh, God reporting through Moses begins to describe to them all the various ways you would build the tabernacle. This is where you're going to get all the materials. This is how all the materials are going to come together. And this is what it's going to look like. And then he begins to describe them actually building the thing and doing it. Bringing the pieces of wood together. Bringing the fabric together. And and clothing the priests. and, And saying this and doing that. And so on and so forth. But in chapter 40, they're close to the end. Look at what he describes. He says, starting in verse 34. He says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting 
and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So this thing they've been building for all this time, they've gotten all this instruction about, they finally erected it, they finally put it together, and the cloud of God's spirit begins to descend upon it. They begin to see what formerly only happened in the tent of meeting, coming together and occupying the residency of this tabernacle. It says, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all of their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up, the tabernacle and the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. And so this is the scene. God's uh, spirit comes down, it descends upon the tabernacle, and they knew we have to stay put. His spirit would leave, it would rise up, and they would follow this cloud, they would follow a column of fire, and they would head out to the place God was going. For verse 38, it says, For the cloud of the Lord was a tabernacle by day, and there was a fire in it by night, inside of all the house of Israel, throughout all of their journeys. So we begin to see that that God is indwelling this place of worship. He's indwelling it. He's indwelling you. And he's indwelling me. But we have to understand this corporately because as we remember, the church is not any of us. The church is all of us. So how has this come to be? How has this uh, thing been fitted together? Well, Paul gives us a greater picture of this uh, in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 20 through 22 Speaking of this same phenomenon, he says, It is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so this is in in a very real way, in a sense, the same thing he discussed last week. That for the church to be the church, it has to be built on the foundation of Jesus. Well, how is Jesus eligible for this? You see, he he is very God of very God. He came, and as Jesse read earlier, he humbled himself. He divested himself of all those things that by virtue of being God, he could have greedily held on to. He humbled himself by becoming a servant. And how did God serve us in the person of Jesus, his incarnate son? He died. This is how he served us. You see, it's not that Jesus came and he said, follow my pattern of existence, follow my good works, follow me into a social gospel. You need to just do good things to people that are hurting. This isn't primarily the way that he served us, although he gave us great instruction for how we follow him. See, how he served us was coming into sinful and lost and broken humanity, being tempted in every conceivable way imaginable, yet not sinning, and then taking on the pain and the penalty and the punishment of my sin and yours. See, it's not just that God looked at sin and said, sin is just this significant encumbrance between me having fellowship with humanity. It's this obstacle, and I'm just going to dismiss it. I'm just going to get rid of it. You see, because God is holy and because God is just, he has to punish sin. And the way God chose to punish sin was for Christ to take on our sin. He lived a perfectly holy life. He took on all of our sin and he took all of the penalty and the punishment of God upon himself in the crucifixion. He died for me. And he died for everyone who has faith in Jesus. See, Jesus died and then he overcame sin and death and he rose again. And so this is how he gets to be the cornerstone and, and the church is being built upon him. Well, Paul continues. 
He says, it's in Jesus in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into what? Into a holy temple in the Lord. We are growing into Jesus. We are displaying Jesus. He says, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's this terrific idea that all of us are being built into something so much greater and more expansive than ourselves. So much greater and more expansive than the finest building we could ever build if we had all of the money in the world. And we don't. How? It's because we, it's because we are indwelt by God. And so you might ask the question, why in the world is this important? And why in the world does this matter? Well, Paul continues, if you skip down a little bit in Ephesians 3, look at verse 10. He says, so that the church, the manifold wisdom of God, stop there. How many churches have you been in that you would say, this looks like wisdom at work? This looks like this divine creator threw all of these people together and they're just getting it done. Like they're just killing it. It's the manifold wisdom of God. All of God's wisdom in one body. I would tell you that most churches you walk in, most churches you walk in, most churches we hear about don't display any type of wisdom. They display a terrific amount of individualism expressed in, I want it my way, I want it now, and if I don't get it that way, then I'm gone. But we can't be that way. Why? Because neither is that the way the church was designed, and it is the only way it functions. He's the foundation. He's building us to be something beautiful together. Together. It's the manifold wisdom of God. For what purpose? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to whom? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now just stop there for a second. It's in the manifold wisdom of God. It's in God's uh, cosmic purposes. It's in his sovereign knowledge and his perfect will. That his his uh, tool that he would use to effect salvation for humanity is the church. That's terrifying. It's the church. That's terrifying. The thought that, that what we do when we gather together here, when we worship, when we read, when we praise when we beg and ask God to forgive us, when we lift high his name, what is that doing? It's testifying to the rulers in higher places that we can't see to the goodness of our God. This is what church is. This is what we do. We're displaying the wisdom of God. We're displaying the character of God. So in a very real sense, if somebody walks in those doors back there and they walk into this room... And, 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 they, and they worship with us at the end of this time. If you were to walk up and say, what do you think? How did it go? What could you tell me about your experience? That what we don't want them to say is that's an incredibly friendly group of people. I've never been, warm, I've never been more warmly greeted. I've never sat in more uncomfortable chairs. I've never experienced these various things. I've never sang songs of this nature. I've never done these things. What we want them to say is, I experienced God with these people. This is what we're doing. This is the whole plan and purpose of God, is that when people see the church, they would see him. 
So everywhere we go in everything we do, we're not building a brand and an identity and a name for ourselves. We are displaying our God. We are his temple. This is, this is chaotic. Sometimes I read this and I think, God, we should have had a sit down at the beginning when you planned this out. I could have told you, look, I don't know if you want to do this. There are other ways. Can we get a consulting group to come in? Can we brand this thing and spin it a little bit? Because I think there's a more effective way. Have you heard of multi-level marketing? <laughs> but this is his plan. This is all he's got. He sent his son Jesus to die for us. The world looked at that and they said, we've overcome the Savior. He sent the church to a desperate and lost humanity. And what's the church done? We found every way imaginable and possible to divide over ridiculous things. We're the, we're the greatest hope for humanity. Why? Because we display God. Do you not know that you are God's temple? Knowing that changes everything. See, the church is not any of us. It is all of us. This is why we have to work with other churches. Ridgecrest does not have the corner in the market in being God's temple. Although when we gather together, there is something valuable about church membership that when we come together and we reverence God. Why? Because we are his temple. We have to gather together with other churches so that we might be maximally effective out there. But we have to seek to display his spirit, display his joy and his forgiveness in here. He says, do you not know that you're his temple? This is the kicker. He says, and then his spirit dwells in you. The same spirit that Moses wrote about there in Exodus 40 and 34 through 38, the spirit of God descending and filling that place where Moses looked at it and says, I can't go in there. I can't be that close to him. That spirit lives in me. And that spirit lives in you. You know what the spirit does in conservative Protestant groups? It kills conversation. It makes us incredibly uncomfortable because it sounds like something supernatural in a sci-fi film. Well, it's not in a sci-fi film, but it is incredibly supernatural. God's spirit resides within his church. His spirit resides within you. His spirit resides in me. And when we gather together as a church, his spirit is doing something definitive and different in this place than he does in our homes and our private places of worship. Why is that? Because he's taking all of our, all the manifestations of the various giftings we have, he's taking those things in me that just annoy the snot out of you. And he's taking those things in you that annoy the snot out of me. And he's bringing us together for our edification, for our sanctification, and for his glory. And this is what he's doing. And over and over again, he's showing people that the church is an agent for change. Why? Not because we have the most talented people. Not because we have the most available people. Not because we have the most forgiving people or the most gregarious and friendly people. Because we have his spirit. We have to recover the knowledge and the application of God's spirit being inside of us. When we seek to do things in our own empowerment, when we seek to do things in our best application of wisdom, and when we seek to do things from a pragmatic perspective, there is no limit uh, of great ruinous things that we can accomplish. We can look like we're incredibly successful, but we can absolutely be failing. We have to be 
a spirit-dependent church. There's no other way for us. There's no other way for us. In the eyes of the world, they could look at us and say they are incredibly successful and we could absolutely be failing inasmuch as we don't apply the principle found therein. God's spirit dwells in me and you. None of us gets to be the church on our own. All of us get to be the church together. Amen? Now there's, there's, there's something to address here, and he begins to talk about it in verse 17. I think the first time I heard verse 17 addressed, it was this, this horrid understanding that somebody uh, read verse 16, and they said that this is just an individual application. So they got to verse 17, and they said this is about suicide. So if you commit suicide, you go straight to hell. You don't pass go, you go straight to hell. Well, this is absolutely wrong. It's absolutely wrong, not just because that's, that's a gross misunderstanding of what happens when somebody kills themselves, but it's a gross misunderstanding because God is in no way, sense, or form, or fashion addressing what happens to myself. He's talking about what happens to us. In some form, he's talking about what it looks like for a church to break up and no longer be. For one of us to get some uh, crazy, lunatic, maniacal idea in our head that we won't let go of, and we are destroying God's temple. Now remind yourself, it's his temple. Remind yourself, his spirit dwells there. But he's saying this, if anyone destroys his temple. So how then are we guilty of destroying God's temple? Well, we don't have that long. And so I just chose a few. One of the ways we destroy God's temple is by sowing discord. Sowing discord. Talking about things that are wrong to as many people as you can possibly find to listen to you. This is what sowing discord is. We're not looking for a bunch of people who have been lobotomized, who know nothing but to nod and give money, but we're also wanting to address... That was funny. (laughs) That's not funny that you're laughing now, but I really thought when I... Justin, you smiled. (laughs) Thank you. Golly. Sowing discord. Everybody just breathe, okay? This isn't where I'm going to ask you to put your knuckles on the table. I'm going to hit him with a ruler. That was last week. (laughs) Man, sowing discord, though, it's so much easier to talk about what's wrong than to talk about what's right. We see that in our personal lives. Somebody gets a haircut. I'm like, did you see the haircut he, she got? And I'm like, they got a haircut? I thought they were bald. (laughs) But it's so much easier to, to talk about things that are wrong than things that are right. And we tend to tolerate sowing discord. Why? Because it's super awkward for somebody to walk up and say, can you believe this was the decision that was made? Or can you believe he said this or that? Or can you believe that we're doing this direction? Or can you believe we're not doing this? It, it feels really awkward to, the per- to, to be the person who's receiving this information to say, you know what? Man, I just don't think we should talk about that. Like, I think we can disagree. And it sounds like you're really upset about something. And I think Matt's the one that made that decision. Or I think, more likely, I think Ken's the one that made that decision. You should, go, you should go talk to Ken. You should let him know. I mean, he longs to talk to you. Or they say, man, I was sitting in Jesse's Sunday school class, and he just rubs me the wrong way. I don't know why he's rubbing on you to begin with, but you should go talk to him. Maybe just say, I don't like to be rubbed. Like, that's a good place to start. But it takes us being willing to be in an uncomfortable situation when somebody is sowing discord and saying things you either know to be false or you know to be not helpful, not building up and stirring one another up to loving good deeds. Like we have to love them enough and we have to love God enough to talk to them, to address that right then and there. You're not finding somebody else to go talk to and you're like, look, 
I need to find somebody that this person is going to respect. No, God has placed you in this position. You talk to them right then, right there. Stop it. If the vast number of churches across this country would do that, we'd have, oh, good gracious, a quarter of as many churches as we do because churches would have stayed together. They would have figured out ways to stay together. Now, there's some issues we just can't work through, but, but the vast majority of things we can. So I think we can destroy God's temple by sowing discord and not addressing it. I think we can absolutely sow uh, discord, but I think the thing that Paul addresses over and over again in the book of 1 Corinthians is false teaching. False teaching. False teaching is typically not this thing that you hear about and say, whoa, that's crazy. But it's the thing you hear about and you're like, that sounds really good. And then the longer you think about it, you're like, I can't find that anywhere else in Scripture, but it's too good to let go of. And then you find in Scripture that those things that sound too good to let go of that aren't in Scripture shouldn't be believed, right? False teaching will absolutely destroy a church. Why? Because it leads them to something else other than Jesus. Hearing that God wants you to be healthy, God wants you to be uh, wealthy, that God wants only the best for you, and that if something bad happens to you, it's the evidence of sin in your life, that's false. It's heretical. It's just not true. The vast number of people that God uses mightily within Scripture suffer terrifically. You want to follow somebody to you want to find somebody to follow in Scripture? Follow Jesus. He was penniless and he died. Paul forsook every accolade he'd ever received for what? To pursue Jesus. The upward calling of following Jesus is suffering not rejoicing in physical, financial blessing. You know, destroy God's temple, teach things that aren't true. You know, destroy God's temple, start endorsing sin because it's too awkward to call it out. Be it adultery, pornography, be it overeating, be it self-aggrandizement, making much of myself pride. Tolerate that. Let that grow. Don't address it. Don't call it out. And when somebody confesses it to you, endorse them and say, man, we all suffer. You just go on with your bad self. Call them out. If somebody shares a sin with you, they probably want somebody to help them come up out of it. So if a brother or sister comes to you and says, man, I, just, I really struggle with pornography, don't dismiss it and say, that's not a big deal. Let's just, can we talk about something else? It's March Madness, you know. Some crazy things happening in the games. Talk to them. Love them enough to help them walk out of that. If a woman comes to you and says, I'm thinking about leaving her, my husband, talk to them. Talk to them about what marriage is. Beg with them. Tell them you'll pay for them to go to counseling. You want to fight for their marriage. Don't use it as an opportunity to say, well, my husband's a loser too, but I stayed married. No. <laughs> Man, we have to love each other enough to step into incredibly uncomfortable situations that no one's out looking for. Like as far as I'm aware, there's nobody in this church that's looking around to find all the sin in any of our lives because they like this sin eater who just delights in knowing everybody else's sin and getting thoroughly ingrained in one another's lives. Like if you're there, that's just weird. I want to talk with other people in the room. We have to love one another enough, be vulnerable enough that we're willing to get engaged and address the difficult things in life. Because this is what God has called us to. We are a fellowship of broken people. 
None of us is whole. None of us is perfect. All of us are failing, and we're doing it together. And somehow, even in the midst of this, we're displaying God's glory. It's that he loves us, and he loves imperfect people, and he's building something amazing out of us together. Let's look at this last one, and I think this is something that's incredibly difficult to isolate and to know. One of the ways we destroy God's temple is by pursuing anything other than Jesus. Certain sins are just obvious, right? So I'm saying something that's not true. I'm doing something that is, that is just kind of written as being wrong, described as wrong. But it's hard to know when I'm pursuing something other than Jesus. I can pursue my family at the expense of pursuing Jesus. I can pursue my job at the expense of pursuing Jesus. I can pursue being liked well by the people around me at the expense of pursuing Jesus. The hard question that has to be asked by each of us to our own hearts is what am I tempted to pursue other than Christ? What am I tempted to pursue other than Christ? I think we ask that question individually, and I think we ask that question of us corporately as a church. I mean, we are in an incredibly difficult time as a body, as an individual body. And I just want to talk about Ridgecrest for a second. We are taking on this enormous building campaign, okay? We tore out the floor and a whole end of our building. Like, we had dirt, y'all. We took all the plumbing out. We took all the electrical out. Our parking lot got this much worse. <laughs> right? It was, it was, never mind. There you go. This massive project, and what this project wants to be is primary. It wants to be the focus of our lives. Why? Because it's something other than Jesus. This project is good, it's great, I support it, my family gives to it, I've encouraged you to give to it and support it. But it's not the main thing we're about. It's not the main thing we're about. Nothing gets to be the main thing other than pursuing Jesus. No person, no preference, no building, no event, no program, nothing gets to be the main thing other than Jesus. You want to destroy the temple of God? Make something other than Jesus most important. It can be your pastor. It can be your building. It can be anything else. Nothing gets to be more important than Jesus. You are, dwell, you are indwelt by his spirit. And he goes on, he says, if anyone destroys the temple of God, God will return the same thing to him. Now, he doesn't tell us what that looks like. And in some degree, it's unhelpful to think about it. One of the things we know in this is that it is future when this will happen. So if you find somebody that's sowing discord and they won't stop or it's engaged in sin and they won't stop and you're asking God the question, God, this person is destroying the church. Why aren't you doing something? He will. He will. We want it done now. I've heard any number of terrible things preached. I've heard any number of horrid things believed that have led people to ruin their lives on the rocks of disbelief. They have bailed on Christianity because they have found it to be untenable because the belief set they were taught ended up not being true 
in the real life, uh, in the real world, in real life. God will destroy him. But this isn't something we long for. This isn't something we desire. We want to see every person who believes something that's not true, who engages in sinful practice, to come back to him. Why? Because that's what he did with me. Paul in Ephesians 2 and verse 1 said, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. I was sinful and I liked it there. No matter if I'm a child or I'm a grown-up, I was in sin and I liked it. I was completely happy there. I was dead spiritually. My heart didn't beat towards God. My hair didn't move towards God. I wasn't inclined towards Him. He found me dead in my trespasses and sins. And what did he do? He made me alive. I've been united with Christ. I have been made whole. And that's what we pray for this person. That if they're a Christian engaged in in, in wrong teaching or wrong living, that God would win them back, that they would not have to suffer for their misapplication of truth. And if they're a lost person working in the church to sow discord, and there's plenty of those, if they were engaged in that pattern and that belief set, that God would, would scandalously love them, that he would redeem them, redeem them, and they would be counted among our number. We pray for their restoration. We pray, in some cases, for their salvation. Look what he goes on with. Verse 17 said, If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. But then he finishes with the why. He says, for God's temple is holy. God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. He looks at all of us. He says, you need to recognize that God's temple is holy. Now, in a very real sense, what he's pulling out here is is what was first spoken in Leviticus 44 and later echoed in 1 Peter. Leviticus 11.44 says, For I, the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. Why? For I am holy. And then the apostle Peter picks up on this same idea. And he writes these words. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Everything you do, everything you say, Everything that you are tempted to engage in, let it all be holy. Let it all be reverenced. Why? Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The church can only ever be what God has designed us to be. The holy manifestation of his glory. So when we engage in anything else, we're being disingenuous, we're being disobedient. We want to be the church built upon Jesus. And we want to be the church led by his spirit. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father God, we need your spirit to guide us, to lead us, to root out sin in our own members our own bodies. The things we do, the things we say, the things we think. You have given to the church the mission of salvation for humanity. Help us to be as you are. Help us to be holy. 
You're indwelling us. Your all-powerful spirit lives within each of us and all of us in this place. Help us to not engage in fanciful imaginings that we're any more important in and of ourselves. We are only used by you. Help us to be useful instruments, to be played by you for the expanse of your kingdom, for your renown and for your glory. Father, I want to pray for the man or woman in this room yet to submit themselves to you. God, that you would continue to work and stir in their hearts, that you would convict them by the power of your spirit concerning sin and righteousness. That although they yet dwell in sin, they might experience life through the forgiveness extended to them in the person of Jesus. And I pray that we would be displaying that weekly, displaying redemption, love, and forgiveness that when someone steps into this room, they would meet you. They would sense you. So God, we pray for the lost to be quickened, to respond in faith. And we pray for the saved person in this room, for the man and woman who has submitted themselves to you, that they would walk in the full acknowledgement of the power and the potency of your spirit at work in this place and in their lives. Your temple is holy. We are your temple. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.